When an emergency strikes, Preppy has you covered. Made in California, canvas and leather emergency kits packed with survival food, water, and first aid with optional emergency satellite communication. Go to Preppy.co. That's P-R-E-P-P-I dot C-O slash Filmweek. From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Film Week. Welcome, I'm Larry Mantle. Wade Major and Leo Lowenstein review this week's busy slate of films. They include writer-director Steve McQueen's third movie in his critically acclaimed Amazon Prime streaming anthology, Small Axe. The little-known story of how the classic Citizen Kane was developed is told in Mank. Gary Oldman stars as screenwriter Herman Mankiewicz, David Fincher directs. The documentary 76 Days takes us inside a Wuhan, China hospital early in the COVID-19 crisis. Our John Horn also interviews the documentary's co-director, Hao Wu. And the Broadway musical The Prom gets a screen adaptation starring Nicole Kidman and Meryl Streep. We're listening to Antonio Carlos Jobim's music from the 1959 classic Black Orpheus. It's Film Week on KPCC. Preppy wants everyone to be prepared for any situation. By bringing design to the forefront of their emergency kits, they are making earthquake prep less daunting and maybe even a little fun. Made in California, Preppy's attractive canvas and leather bags are designed to be displayed right in your living room or office. If an emergency strikes, your most essential supplies are at arm's length, not stashed somewhere deep in your closet. Though the Preppy line is quite handsome on the outside, the contents they include are incredibly comprehensive, helping you face real emergency situations with confidence. Go to Preppy.co, that's P-R-E-P-P-I dot C-O slash Filmweek for more information. Welcome to Film Week. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us. I'm joined this week by critics Leah Lowenstein, film columnist for the Santa Monica Daily Press, and Wade Major, film critic for Synagogues.com. First up is Red, White, and Blue from writer-director Steve McQueen. Each week we've heard reviews of the films in his Small Axe Anthology series, which is streaming on Amazon Prime Video. This week's Red, White, and Blue stars John Boyega and Steve Toussaint, uh, McQueen the director and co-screenwriter with Cordia Newland. Leo, what do you think of Red, White, and Blue? I thought this was absolutely extraordinary. Steve McQueen is a director just working at the top of his game, and he gets a performance out of John Boyega here that I could not have imagined. Um, It is about a forensic uh, scientist, police worker, who decides he wants to join the force, and it takes place during the early 80s in London. And it's really remarkable the way uh, McQueen allows tension to escalate, shows the effect of institutional racism and the ways in which it permeates that institution. It is absolutely magnificent and so timely now. Red, white, and blue, Wade. Oh, I love this film. It's it's This is much larger in scale than even the first two installments of, of the Small Act series. Um, centering primarily on the relationship between John Boyega's character and his father, John Boyega, obviously born in the UK. His father, played by Steve Toussaint, this incredibly proud Jamaican immigrant. And it, it delves not just into the issues of, of the racism that they experience as a Caribbean people, but 
what they experience inside the family, the tensions between uh, father and son, the familial tensions, the tensions between generations, the cultural tensions that are introduced. Um, it's so textured, and it's so refreshing to see somebody like Steve McQueen who has an eye. He has a magnificent eye, and it keeps getting better and better. And where his first films were a little bit too stylized for me here, I think he's found the perfect balance between style and story. All right. Uh, red, white, and blue. Uh, Lael, elaborate a little bit uh, on the performances in the film, because you said you, you wouldn't have thought Boyega turned in a performance uh, this stunning. That's right, Larry. I'd only seen him in the recent Star Wars films, and I wasn't particularly impressed. He seemed so kind of over-earnest, and I realized that was just, you know, largely the character that he was playing. But he, I, I didn't expect him to have so much gravitas and so much um, to be capable of so much range. A lot of that, I think, is really due to McQueen's direction. And of course, to the fact that he's using a voice that is closer to his own English voice. Um, but you see in his face, in the kind of slow burn, um, the, the, the aggression, the, the resentment, the frustration that he feels. He's called a Judas by, um, by his own uh, friends for, for joining the force. And he, you know, he'll say things like that's constable Judas to you. We, we see that in his own family, he doesn't, he, they don't even want him to join the force, but he feels like he has to do it to change the institution from within to address the racism from within. And he ends up having a different perspective after going through this period. And he's, you know, at the top of his class, he's recognized for his skills, his remarkable abilities, but all of this racism keeps coming back to haunt him, this intolerance and this bigotry. And I, it's just a testament to Boyega's work and really to McQueen's very calibrated direction here that he can get so much nuance out of, you know, just a just an expression, just a face, just so much nuance. Really, really powerful. We're talking about Steve McQueen's film, The Third, in his uh, movie anthology, Small Acts, Red, White, and Blue. Um, I, was, I was wondering also, Wade, if, um, you know, McQueen, who can who can treat his subject matter kind of coolly, if if that is evidenced in this film or whether um, it's, it's got kind of more of the traditional emotional components we're used to seeing in films like this. It is very, very deeply emotional. And again, that's because John Boyega brings so much of that out of the material and because Steve McQueen trusts John Boyega to do so. It, what Lale used the word calibrated, and that's exactly what is so great about this film, is that everything is calibrated. What Boyega does that is so magnificent and so Oscar-worthy is that he is acting on two levels. He's thinking, but he's also saying. And very often, what he is saying does not correspond to what he is thinking and you don't he could you, you listen to what he's saying but you know he's thinking something else and you see it in his eyes and you feel it in in his body language and it's such a multi-layered rich character and it communicates so many emotions repressed emotions and emotions that he doesn't even know how to deal with at a certain point because he feels like the odd man out in his family and his community and his job um, and he's trying to find a place for himself and for those that he cares about. And it's it's really an extraordinary film on every level. Red, White, and Blue from writer-director Steve McQueen. John Boyega stars It's Unrated on Amazon Prime Video. 
The uh, screenwriter Herman J. Mankiewicz's uh, development of Citizen Kane is the center of the film Mank, directed by David Fincher. Gary Oldman stars as Mankiewicz, along with Amanda Seyfried and Lily Collins. Jack Fincher, uh, the late father of David Fincher, is the screenwriter of Mank. Wade? I really, really enjoyed this. It is it is a little-known story about uh, Citizen Kane as to how... Uh, Herman Mankiewicz came to write it, his relationship with his very tempestuous and stormy relationship with uh, Orson Welles and uh, the, the, the circumstances under which he wrote it while he was recovering from an auto accident in the middle of the desert. Um, it, it, Gary Oldman just nails this. He absolutely captures Mank's uh, personality and sensibility and his kind of crusty, caustic one-liners. It, it's it's beautifully put together. It's done like an old movie from the 1930s, from the opening credits, all shot in black and white. The music, everything about it is meant to sort of capture the spirit of those movies. But at the same time, it feels very modern in a certain sense because it's a, it's a psychological examination. It's a, an examination of artistic process. And... Uh, uh, I think Fincher really found that perfect sweet spot. Uh, there are so many great stories from old Hollywood, and uh, it's wonderful that we're starting to finally mine them. Mank, what did you think, Lael? Oh, well, I think I'm a little uh, more tempered in my enthusiasm than Wade. Uh, I did admire it, and I thought the performances were extraordinary all the way around. I'll tell you, it if there ever was an argument for, for seeing something on the big screen, it would be this, because... It plays, to, it just is wonderfully visually evocative of Citizen Kane in many ways and, and consciously so. And it's a shame to see that, you know, on a home screen. I mean, the, the gorgeous widescreen cinematography, which pays homage to Greg Tolan, the, um, the deep focus, the, the camera angles, the, the, the craftsmanship that goes into this. It really, I think, suffered to some extent um, by being shown on a smaller screen. However, I could still admire artistically what, what Fincher was doing with it. Um, the, the constant theme of the quest is, is, a, is something that Fincher has treated over and over. And, you know, here we have this quest to sort of find out what made Mankiewicz tick, which, you know, plays, plays on the whole rosebud thing in a way. Um, I, I also thought the sort of tipping of the hat to, to Hearst and the, his use of fake news um, to keep Upton Sinclair, who he couldn't stand from being elected governor of California. There's a lot of politics and history that, that's involved here. And you really see how Hollywood was a very, very political world and still is in many ways. Mank, of uh, following screenwriter Herman Mankiewicz, Gary Oldman stars as Mankiewicz, David Fincher, the director. It's rated R and it's streaming on Netflix. The documentary 76 Days takes us into the world of frontline medical professionals and their patients in Wuhan, China, during the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic. How Wu is the writer of the documentary, Wei Shi Chen, and how who are the directors of the film. Leo, what'd you think of 76 Days? Well, this is a raw and searing documentary that is very much in the verite, kind of fly on the wall uh, school of filmmaking. It takes place in four hospitals during the 76 day lockdown in Wuhan. And it opens with an extremely powerful uh, scene, which is a woman who uh, is working in, in a medical staff in, in the hospital, 
who wants to see her father who is dying of COVID and everyone is in full hazmat gear and she's crying out, wanting to see her father and being told she cannot see him. And we, you know, you, you get so much, so powerfully, so quickly. Um, it does end up becoming a little bit repetitive in some ways, but the amount of access that was granted is extraordinary given the conditions of its filmmaking. Um, that would never be possible here. Uh, and it, it really is very eye-opening just in terms of the way COVID was dealt with in its early days there. 76 days, the documentary weighed. Yeah, it, it reminds me to a great extent of some of the documentaries we got from uh, the conflict in Kosovo right in the early days and then also coming out of Syria in the last few years where it isn't pass- it's not trying to explain it, it's not trying to pass judgment in any political way or so- make any sociopolitical comment. It just wants to immerse us in the situation. It wants you to feel as if you are there. And make and draw your own conclusions after that. And to that extent, I think it's very successful. It's it's very visceral. It uh, it does touch a little bit on the political, but not on the part of the filmmakers. Uh, you know, for example, there's a scene where a, a father is talking on the phone to his son, who's you know uh, berating him for not being a good party member, and he insists that he is, but he you know he's got to stop complaining. And you do get a, a certain taste of how the politics in China at least folded into the experiences of families that were struggling with in the, with this in the early days. But mostly it focuses on the on the frontline workers and how they have to keep reinventing their job every day because they're dealing with something that they've never dealt with before and no one really understands this. 76 Days documentary from directors Wei Shi Chen and Hao Wu. Hao Wu will be with our John Horn later this hour on Film Week talking about the making of 76 Days and how they got the extraordinary access they did to the medical facility in Wuhan, China. The film is unrated. You can see it on Lemley's Virtual Cinema. The musical comedy The Prom is directed by Ryan Murphy. It stars Nicole Kidman, Meryl Streep, and Keegan Michael Key. Wade? I, I don't know why this was. This is based on the uh, the Broadway show of the same name from 2018-2019, uh, ran for about a year on Broadway. I don't know why they relocated it to Indiana. Um, if I were in Indiana, I wouldn't be too happy about that. The original story that this is based on took place in Mississippi, where a girl wanted to bring her girlfriend to the prom, and there was backlash from the very, very conservative community there, and uh, that m- was turned into this very loosely based musical in which a group of uh, of Hollywood or of uh, Broadway musical theater stars see a publicity opportunity in going and lobbying to get this girl to go back to her prom. They cancel the prom, the entire prom for everyone, and they want to kind of put on a show. It's, so it's got a little, it feels a little bit like a gay footloose on the one hand. It feels very much like glee on the other. Um, I, I don't know that it's entirely successful. I think it, it kind of preaches to the choir a little bit, but that choir will fully love it. The prom, Lail. Uh, pretty much in line with Wade. Uh, you know, it's great to see Streep doing another musical after she was so successful in Mamma Mia um, and Nicole Kidman clearly wanting to flex her Bob Fosse chops. There's a number here, which is very Fosse-esque. Um, it's, it is very, very Ryan Murphy. And in the, in the sense of Glee, let's say, it, it feels very much like an extended Glee episode that didn't necessarily even need to be as long as it is. Um, I felt like it, it could have been stronger had it been perhaps shorter, but of course the messages 
important and lovely and and uh, and it it has some redeeming moments and a couple of really sweet, catchy songs. So, you know, you can't fault it that. The Prom from director Ryan Murphy. It's written by Bob Martin, Chad Beglin, and Jack Vertel. It's streaming on Netflix, uh, and uh, that starts on December 11th. So you've got a little over a week before it's streaming there. But it's showing now at drive-ins, including the Vineland Drive-In in the City of Industry, as well as at the Mary Pickford Theater in Cathedral City in the Coachella Valley. The Prom is rated PG-13. Coming up, we'll hear what our critics have to say about the documentary Dear Santa, which looks at the 100-year-old Operation Santa program conducted by the U.S. Postal Service. And another documentary looks at patients and their doctors uh, as they go through FDA-approved clinical trials for stem cell and antibody therapies. The doc is titled Ending Disease. You're listening to Film Week on 89.3 KPECC and the KPECC app. It's Film Week on KPECC. I'm Larry Mantle, joined by critics Wade Major and Leo Lowenstein. Next up, the documentary Dear Santa, which focuses on the Operation Santa program of the U.S. Postal Service. The film's directed by Dana Nachman. Lael? Well, this is a very sweet and perhaps in many ways what we need documentary. It's uh, a, It focuses on the 100-year Operation Santa program of the United States Postal Service, which is a program that um, takes the thousands of letters that children have written to Santa and allows them to be adopted by, um, let's say, elves, human elves who um, donate gifts and um, find the means to get uh, gifts donated to answer the requests of these kids' letters. The best part of the film for me, hands down, was um, an opening montage in which kids talk about what Santa means to them and that was just, it was by turns funny and tender and, you know, just just so sweet and endearing. Um, I, I found it to be a very, very warm documentary. <clears throat> and um, in many ways, I some unanswered questions. Um, I wish that it had shed more light on perhaps the kids who don't get their letters answered. But nevertheless, it's a fascinating program that I didn't even know existed. Dear Santa, the film, Wade? I really love this. And I think I probably love it as much for for the fact that we need something like this right now. Um, I had no idea that Operation Santa even existed until I saw this film. And I was a bit shocked by that. But it's an extraordinary thing that that this the just the spirit of christmas the spirit of the holidays fueled this this uh, this growth in nonprofit charity working with the post office to make sure that these all of these these wishes and these dreams are fulfilled and nobody did this from a bureaucratic uh, initiative this was just grassroots desire to do great and that's that's really what's so so reassuring about this is is that everyone jumped in 
to make something that was just a small idea an enormous reality. People formed nonprofits specifically to participate in this, and they've done it for years. And it, it the good that it does, the happiness that it brings, we really need that right now. All right. The movie is Dear Santa, and it's on Amazon Prime Video, Apple TV, and Vudu, the film unrated. Dana Nachman is the director. Ending Disease, a documentary about clinical trials for stem cell and antibody therapies. Joe Gantz, the director, Wade. Boy, I learned so much about stem cells watching this. You know, we, we've had stem cells in the news for years and years and years, and it's been a little bit of a political football where, where embryonic stem cells are concerned. But um, if you want to actually understand the science behind it, uh, the, the news has not really done us a great service. This movie does. It, it, it looks, there are, I guess, 41 or 42 trials underway. They look at 10 of them here specifically. Uh, and they get really, really into the weeds of what the, the science is, what is involved, depending on what illness or affliction you have, what the process is. They talk to the patients, the families, the doctors, the children. It deals with faith issues. It deals with public policy issues. It is it is lengthy and it is really in-depth. The film is Ending Disease. Lael? Yes, I thought this was a tremendously important film. I would have liked to see it actually as a multi-part series. There's so much in here. It was almost hard to keep track of all the different stories that are going on, but they all do sort of dovetail together in many ways. You have a paralyzed high school athlete um, who broke his neck. You You have a cancer patient. You have an HIV patient. You have a little girl. You have a woman with retinitis pigmentosa, and you see the tremendous effects, possibilities of the stem cell and uh, CAR T cells um, being used. Now, it's important to note that not every one of these stories has a happy ending. Um, they, you know, it's not promised with the stem cells that that they're going to be some sort of a, a, a miracle cure, but they do allow for mag- you know, tremendous, tremendous improvements that hadn't been possible before. And there is, in some parts of the film, an indictment of big pharma, which I thought was really interesting. And I would have liked to see just a little more of what Wade mentioned as the political football. I would have liked to hear a little more discussion of, you know, what what the what the outcome is going to be in the future for stem cell research, given that it has been so hotly debated in the past and now is becoming much more widely accepted and widely used. And and more widely funded uh, as well. Ending Disease, the documentary from director Joe Gantz, Lemley's Virtual Cinema, where you can see the unrated documentary. Black Bear, a comedic drama, stars Aubrey Plaza, Christopher Abbott, and Sarah Gadden. It's written and directed by Lawrence Michael Levine. Wade? Yeah, Lawrence Michael Levine has been kind of an indie darling for uh, at least a decade, if not longer now. And um, he turns in really interesting films. This is a funky little indie thriller that takes a twist that a lot of people may not see coming. It sort of uh, starts like a here. I'm going to get really pretentious about French cinema, but it starts like a Francois Ozon thriller and it winds up like a Jean-Luc Godard film. It's almost as if you were watching Swimming Pool and then it it kind of pivoted and turned into contempt halfway through. If those references mean nothing to you, then you're probably not the audience for this film. Uh, 
But um, uh, Aubrey Plaza is absolutely wonderful here. She, uh, as is Sarah Gadon, who's you know one of the who's been in some great Cronenberg films, Canadian actress who's just wonderful. Uh, Christopher Abbott is the is the you know the holds this very peculiar triangle together, and uh, you don't really see where it's coming from or where it's going. But if you're an Aubrey Plaza fan in particular, you're really going to enjoy her performance. That's making me think about Swimming Pool again and Charlotte Rampling, right? Uh, that's right. Yeah. Yes. Had such a great performance in in that film from Ozone. We're talking about Black Bear. Uh wait, anything uh to add about the the performances in the film? Well, I mean, it's it's really a try and I don't want to give too much away. It's really a triangle between three characters and when it starts, Aubrey Plaza is is a a, a an actress/filmmaker who's gone to a uh, an Airbnb out in the woods that is run by this couple who's who is you know they're expecting a baby and their marriage may not be quite as solid as as appears that's as much as I can really tell you about okay. what this film is and where it goes because it's it it really does take some un- unbelievably unorthodox turns Black Bear from writer director Lawrence Michael Levine is rated R and it's at the Arena Cine Lounge in Hollywood and available on video on demand including Vudu, Fandango Now, and Google Play. And we should mention the Cine Lounge with their new uh, drive-in in the parking lot there right near the theater. The documentary Baby God is on HBO and on HBO Max. Hannah Olson, the director of the film, which tells the story of Dr. Quincy Fortier. Lael? Wow. Well, this is kind of a horrifying documentary in many ways. Uh, first, over 30 years, Dr. Fortier used his own sperm to inseminate uh, his patients, um, many of whom were looking to get pregnant and thought they were getting inseminated with their uh, partner or husband's sperm, some of whom actually were not looking to get pregnant. Um, but this this doc actually tracks the offspring of Dr. Fortier, who discover, thanks to the advent of genealogy tracing kits like 23andMe, the fact that their paternity is in question, that the, the father who they thought was their father was not their father. And the mothers, some of the mothers are still around and they and they comment on this and say, you know, well, we wondered how, let's say, how they turned out to be so smart when, you know, the dad wasn't much of an intellect, <laughs> you know, there's, there's that. And, and so it's, I'm sure dad loved to hear in the documentary. <laughs> the dads are gone. But, okay. But um, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's remarkable because one of these um, offspring grew up to become an investigator for the, for a police department. And, and so she uses her investigative skills to uncover some of her siblings and you see them, you meet them and it's, unbelievably uncanny how much they look like Dr. Fortier. Um, they, many of them actually have very much his, his characteristic nose. They, you know, tend to wear the same glasses as he did. And it's, it's, it's kind of this, it's both, you know, horrible and it's really kind of riveting and kind of icky and, and you, you just can't look away. Um, it's it's a fascinating and and horrifying capability of someone to practice eugenics um, in his own practice. And by the way, apparently he was he was not alone. He may have been alone in this particular practice. But other doctors talk about how during medical school they used to routinely donate sperm, and they have no idea how many children they produced. So 
it's it's a really kind of interesting look at at, at a particularly um, unscrupulous doctor and a wide the wider practice of sperm donation as well. Well, and and, and that's something that's been documented um, of, of medical school students at least in the past. But that was to sperm banks, right? So that's right. above board. Unlike what. Dr. Fortier did here. Now he's dead. Is is there uh, an ability to explore what his motivation was? Why he why he did this? Well, Larry, yes. I mean, <clears throat> that's that is one of the things that gets discussed here, and and one of the theories that's kind of bandied about is that he just sort of figured his own sperm was of a higher caliber than that of the prospective donating. Uh, husband, you know, that he, he felt that he had, he could sort of contribute to improving the species, I suppose. Um, it's, it's really, there, there are other layers to this that are, I won't go into that things get revealed that it it gets even sort of creepier if you can imagine, but he was taken to trial and he was, there was a, one of the cases was settled. All right. Baby God is the film. It's unrated. Again, it's on HBO and streaming on HBO Max as well. The film Half Brothers, directed by Luke Greenfield, stars Luis Gerardo Mendez, uh, along with uh, Connor Del Rio. Uh, the film's written by Jason Schumann and Eduardo Cisneros. Half Brothers, Wade? This would be, uh, in another year, this would have been a really, really insufferable Will Ferrell uh, comedy with Adam Sandler in one part and Will Ferrell in the other one, and we would have all hated it. Um, but the, the mismatched buddy, half-brother buddy, half gimmick actually works not too badly with, with these two particular actors because they take the parts much more seriously and less campy. Uh, the idea is basically there's a Mexican uh, aviation executive who whose father left the family many years earlier dur- during the Mexican economic downturn. And now he, his father, many years later, his father has a new family in America and is dying. And he discovers that he has a half brother. And of course they don't get along. Brother's an idiot. He's, you know, a very successful executive, but they have to fulfill his father's dying wish. Comedy ensues. Uh, that's basically the movie in a nutshell. It's formulaic. We've seen it before, but it's it's endearing only because these two actors uh, act as if they've never done this before or ever seen it before. The film is Half Brothers. Leo, what do you think of the comedic drama? Yes, absolutely. Very much feeling like something we've seen many times before, and perhaps we have, but the actors bring some kind of commendable uh, lightness to it. And there's a number of there are a number of scenes that kind of work for me, despite the fact that it just feels utterly predictable. Um, it's it's nevertheless kind of charming in spite of all that. By the way, there's a sort of wonderfully endearing goat, and that was probably the best part of it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. F Brothers, directed by Luke Greenfield, rated BG thirteen. And you can see it at the drive-in, either the Mission Tiki in Montclair, the Van Buren in Riverside, or the Rubido in Riverside. Another round, uh, a Scandinavian uh, Netherlands co-production comedic drama that stars Mads Mikkelsen, Tom. Thomas Bo Larson and uh, Manunas uh, Milan, uh, the film directed by Thomas Vinterberg, who co-wrote it with Tobias Lindholm. Lael? Uh, this is a mixed bag. I, I generally like Thomas Vinterberg, um, and, and here he kind of explores a, a, a really obscure theory, at least to me, by the Norwegian psychologist Finn Skarderud. This is true that the human body, according to him, 
is uh, typically 0.05% um, less alcohol al alkalinity uh, than it really ought to be. So he thinks that people typically should just go through the day with one to two glasses of, of alcohol in their system at all times. And Mads Mikkelsen plays a um, uh, high school teacher who is bored. He, he is dispassionate about his teaching. He's, he's bored in his marriage. He has no, uh, no vim, no vigor in his life at all. And he embarks on this quest with these friends to practice this 5% uh, this alcohol theory and some sort of hijinks ensue. At first they become better teachers, better coaches, better lovers. And then you can sort of imagine where it goes. It's For me, it sort of fell apart a little bit in the second to third act, but okay. it does pick up. You could subtitle it Tippling, I guess. Another round, we'll hear what Wade thinks of the film starring Mads Mikkelsen, Thomas Vinderberg, the writer-director. You're listening to Film Week on 89.3 KPCC. I'll be back with Leah Lowenstein and Wade Major with more films to review in just a minute. Coming up on Film Week KPCC's John Horn interviews the director of 76 Days, a documentary that takes us inside the Chinese hospital in Wuhan that is right at the center of the uh, early days of the COVID-19 pandemic. How Wu with John Horn coming up later this hour. But we continue our reviews with Wade Major and Leo Lowenstein. We're hearing about the uh, comedic drama Another Round from writer director Thomas Finterberg. Wade, what do you think? You know, when Lael and I were going back and forth in email about what we'd seen and what we thought the other should see and, and all of that, I asked her about another round and she emailed me back and she just wrote intermittently worth watching, which uh, which made <laughs> me laugh because it was so dry. And yet it it describes this so perfectly. It, it is intermittently worth watching. It's not um, vintage Vinterberg, as Lael also said. But, um, you know, the thing about Vinterberg is he, he, he's obsessed with or particularly concerned with the, the things that can cause organized orderly society to fray, to fall apart around the edges. What will tear apart our pretense of, of, of order and sophistication and modernity? And he does that here as well. You know, everything looks like it's on the up and up until these guys make this pact, this weird alcohol pact. And then things go up a little and then they, of course, crash. The, the thing that it doesn't have is credibility, even though this is a real theory. Any movie, which is usually <laughs> usually goes for, for thrillers and horror films where people make a pact or an agreement, it, it's only as successful as your, your belief in the credibility of that pact. Would these people actually do this? And I have a very hard time believing that how, it, despite these boring lives, these unfulfilling lives, that these men with beautiful children and wives and families and secure jobs would actually do something like this and put it all at risk just for a silly psychiatric theory. Um, it's a very, very hard hill to climb. Something like Strangers on a Train makes it work because only one of them thinks that they made the pact. Here, all you have to believe that all four of these guys were all in. And that's a very tough hill to hurdle. Uh, no. um, 
yeah. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Final point. Wait. Well, I, I, I was just going to say, but you know, once you get past that, there are some wonderful performances. Mads Mikkelsen can can work wonders as an actor, so it, it's worth getting past that just to see him act. But it's still a tough tough hill to climb. Another round is unrated. It's on Lemley's Virtual Cinema, and then in two weeks, it'll have wider distribution on video on demand platforms. Mayor, a documentary about the mayor of the Palestinian city Ramallah. Uh, the film is directed by David Osset. Wade? Doesn't really add a great deal new to our understanding of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, but it does it does uh, inform us in some additional ways that perhaps uh, some people may not have known. For example, Ramallah is is a Christian city. The mayor is Christian. Uh, they are Palestinians, but they are Christian Palestinians, and it mostly centers around how this city positions itself um, to to try to run as a functional city in what is effectively not an autonomous country and. And especially during the time when President Trump announced moving the uh, U.S. embassy to Jerusalem, how that impacts all of their their intended initiatives and, and ability to run as an independent city. So it's a nice little microcosmic, microcosmic example of something that is happening in the middle of a larger conflict, but it does not necessarily contribute to our understanding of the broader conflict. Mayor is the film from David Osset. It's unrated on Lemley's Virtual Cinema. Godmothered, a comedic fantasy film directed by Sharon McGuire. It's written by Carrie Granlund and Melissa Stack. It stars Isla Fisher, Jillian Bell, and June Squibb. Lale. So this is pretty much like Elf uh, if it was done from uh, the female perspective. Jillian Bell, who I love, she was so great in Brittany Runs a Marathon, plays an aspiring godmother who's sort of a flunky and she can't quite get things right. And she goes down to earth from godmother land up above or wherever it is to, uh, to grant the wish to one, to one girl, to one, to one young girl, because the godmothering program is potentially going to be discontinued. And she, she finds Isla Fisher, who is now the grown version of that girl and tries to um, grant her wishes uh, to meet the prince of her dreams, except that she wrote this like 25 years ago or 30 years ago, and she now has a, a life and two children and a home and and so forth. And so there's, you know, a lot of confusion, a lot of physical humor. If I had a nickel for every time the women in this film shrieked in surprise or delight, I would be very wealthy. Uh, it, <laughs> I felt like it was a, a little bit of a retread, particularly with all the elf stuff. It just, it just felt like it was kind of a rehash, but uh, there are some cute moments and a wonderful little cameo by Jane Curtin, who I always love to see. Uh, the film is Godmothered. It's streaming on Disney Plus, rated PG. Luxor, an Egyptian romantic drama which stars Andrea Riseborough, uh, Kareem Saleh, and Michael Landis. It's written and directed by Zaina Dura. Wade? I really like this a lot. This is uh, one of those meditative European films that never really uh, gets uh, too far under the skin, but the actors get to emote to a, to a great extent. Um, Andrea Riseborough, who's just, I think, one of the most brilliant, underrated British actors, plays a, a physician, a doctor who works primarily, presumably with an organization, an NGO like Doctors Without Borders. Um, and she has been, she has just come from 
the border between Jordan and Syria, where she has seen things that are unspeakable. And she never really tells you what they are, but she's clearly struggling to get over what it is that she has seen and experienced. And she goes to Luxor in Egypt to to kind of recover. And there she bumps into an old flame, played by Lebanese actor Karim Saleh, who, uh, who is now there on an archaeological dig. And um, they're happy to see each other. They rekindle their romance, but it's clear that she's not the same person. She's very damaged. And um, and he he struggles to help her deal with it. And that's ex- essentially the extent of the film. So you're watching it basically to watch her plumb her emotions in a very, very nonverbal way. And she does it beautifully. It's a very sparse film. It's a slow film. It's a meditative film. But from an acting standpoint, you're not going to see a better female performance all year. Luxor from writer-director Zaina Dura is unrated, and you can see it on multiple video-on-demand platforms. Uh, the documentary Billy looks at the life of jazz singer Billie Holiday. James Erskine directed Lale. It's, it's interesting the approach that this documentary takes because it, it really focuses on a story within a story. Um, of course, it is about the life of legendary jazz singer Billie Holiday, but it's also taken um, from the perspective of a journalist named Linda Lipnack-Kuhl, who um, was in the late 60s um, pursuing a book about Billie Holiday, and she spent hundreds and hundreds of hours interviewing people, including Tony Bennett, Count Basie, with whom she became friends later, and many others who were very close to Billie Holiday. And this journalist, interestingly, or perhaps mysteriously, turned up dead in the mid-70s in a case that was never solved. So it's it's implied that her inquiry into Billie Holiday's life and the fact that she wouldn't, she was unrelenting in her investigation Um, that that may or may not have led to her own death. To me, in some ways, that sort of framing device took away a little bit from the actual Billie Holiday story. What was most remarkable to me was not just some of the interviews, which have never before been aired um, with people like Tony Bennett and sort of, you know, just hearing what they had to say about working with Billie Holiday, but also um, a lot of the footage with holiday singing, which was was just, you know, it's still to this day is really quite remarkable. I mean, what a voice and and her phrasing and her just her distinctive choices in the singing were so absolutely stunning. Um, but also the racism that she had that she endured and the life choices that she had to make, even turning tricks at a very young age um, to to get by. Uh, I, I thought it was a mixed documentary I would have preferred without the framing device, but I still thought there were some redeeming qualities. Billy is the documentary on Billy Holiday. James Erskine, the director, it's unrated, and it's available on Apple TV and on Amazon Prime Video. Wade, do you want to give us just uh, about 20 seconds on the drama Elise, starring Anthony Hopkins and directed by his wife, Stella Hopkins, who co-wrote it? Very low budget film, uh, shot by Dante Spinotti, uh, no less. The basically written and directed uh, by Stella Hopkins, Anthony Hopkins' wife, detailing uh, a, an inst based on her own family, an instance of of trauma and PTSD. Anthony Hopkins really the best thing about it. The acting is pretty stilted. It's pretty low budget. He did the score okay. as well, but um, he he's worth watching. Uh, Elise is on video on demand platform starting next Tuesday. It's Film Week on eighty. 89- 9.3 KPCC, John Horn with director Hao Wu coming right up. 
You're listening to Film Week on KPECC. I'm Larry Mantle. Great to have you with us. Earlier in the hour, we heard our critics review the documentary 76 Days, which takes us right into the thick of the COVID-19 outbreak in its early days in Wuhan, China. You go along with frontline healthcare workers as they treat their patients in a hospital in Wuhan province. KPECC's John Horn talked with the director of 76 Days, Hao Wu, about how the film came together in the midst of chaos. The footage that you have is incredible. It's incredibly intimate. It's very close to where everything is happening. So before we talk about how you got that footage, when you were reviewing what you're getting out of Wuhan, what did you consider that was maybe too personal, too difficult to watch, that even though it was good cinema, felt almost invasive? How did you draw those lines? So my two co-directors were filming in Wuhan. They didn't know each other. Um... I reached out to over a dozen filmmakers who had started filming in Wuhan. And then I found my two co-directors. I, I just loved their footage. So they were uploading their footage onto the cloud in Wuhan. I would download them in New York. So I'm always a couple of days late. My first impression when I first watched their rushes was that, wow, I'm finally seeing what COVID-19 or coronavirus is like. Uh, and then we have heard about the chaos in Wuhan. We have heard about the chaos on the Princess Diamond cruise uh, in Japan. But, you know, what, can, what kind of damage can it do to people? We had no clue. We had very little visual, especially video uh, footage coming out of the front line. So, so as soon as I saw the footage from the co-director, my first impression was, this is so up close and personal. I want to be able to incorporate that into my film. Absolutely later on, during the editing stage, we decided to remove certain footage, especially there are several shots, several scenes of dead people's bodies being wrapped up. So out of respect to the dead, we we, we removed them. But in many other shots and scenes, we decided, I, I, I talked to my director, we decided to just to keep it as, as much as possible in the film. I think it's just so rare, even today, in November, it's still rare for people to, you know, to witness uh, the, the, the havoc that the pandemic has done to people. One of the things you intentionally don't do is you don't really leave the hospital at all. You do for a patient who has tested positive for COVID, and you don't have talking heads or narration or data about infection rates. You just are almost real time inside the hospital by not doing those other things, how does it change the nature of the movie that you're making? I feel like we had heard enough in the news media that's um, re- reviewing and commentating on what happened in China, in Wuhan, and elsewhere. I feel like anything, if I repeat any of that in my film, I'm simply regurgitating what's already been said in the media. I'm not bringing any new perspective uh, in in the understanding of uh, of this pandemic. Secondly, I think it's, uh, I, uh, once again, I'm just following the strengths of my footage. Just like a narrative filmmaker, a documentary filmmaker casts his or her film by selecting the people you're going to follow. I want to ask about a nurse whose job it is, in part, to return mobile phones to the families of people who have died, and an elderly patient who might have some memory issues who is constantly trying to leave the hospital um, 
much to the kind of almost amusement and consternation of the healthcare workers. How did you end up following those people and why do their stories resonate with you as a storyteller? During production, I did have several discussions with my co-directors about whom they should follow, should film. But the reality is in the hospital, things were very chaotic. And there were many patients and doctors you didn't, you know, my co-directors did their best uh, and tried to film as much as possible inside the hospital. But they they honestly didn't know um, who could turn out to be, quote-unquote, the main characters in the film. One of your co-directors is listed as anonymous, and I suspect that's because he or she has concerns about what might happen in China if they're identified. But I'm wondering, in terms of access and repercussions, what are your concerns, and was it actually easier to maybe to film in China than it might have been in the States? (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of ironic. I did feel like, because in in March, in late uh, February, I made plans to smuggle myself. I, I, I live in New York to sort of smuggle myself back into Wuhan because I really wanted to be on the front line with my co-directors. We made an elaborate plan. Uh, I'm going to go into Wuhan because Wuhan was under lockdown. There's no flight, no public transportation would go in. But, you know, we found the truck that's uh, shipping donation supplies into Wuhan. So I, 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 basically the truck can carry, could carry me in, in, into Wuhan. I tried to get inside the hospital myself in, in New York. That was extremely, extremely challenging, almost impossible. So the thing with China is there's always rules. There's always ways to get around the rules. Um, during the lockdown, there was control over who could get access to the, to the hospital. But the, that kind of control was not uniformly applied throughout the, 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 the period of the lockdown or across all the different medical facilities in Wuhan. So my two co-directors, they're both reporters. So they can show the reporters back to say, we have reasons to be here, especially in the beginning of the lockdown when there was absolute chaos. And uh, so as long as the hospital um, hospital chief says, oh, it's okay for you to get in, we trust this guy, and that reporter could have unrestricted access inside the contamination zone, which is unforeseeable here in the U.S. And secondly, I think at the beginning of the uh, lockdown, there was a severe shortage in PPEs. So many hospitals actually welcome reporters to come in and report so they could you know, basically the, the, the reporter could bring more awareness and tell the outside that what's truly happening in Wuhan so more people would donate supplies to the hospitals. It is a long way from Wuhan to William Shakespeare, but I'm going to quote one of my favorite lines from Twelfth Night, which is, some are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrust upon them. And that, to me, describes the healthcare workers we see in this film, some of whom travel hundreds of kilometers to go help at great risk to themselves and being apart from their families. And this is doctors, nurses, and medical staff. In terms of what you saw about the call, about people who are called to help others in healthcare, what was your takeaway of the sacrifices and the compassion and the quality of care they offered these patients in such dark times? As I was finishing this film, I was also being mindful. I asked my co-director because I wasn't there in Wuhan on the front line. I I also talked to him and said, I didn't I don't want to make a propaganda film for the Chinese government. Is that true that what you observed 
uh, what you capture on camera is truly what the majority of the health workers were doing in China. They say, yes, absolutely. Because obviously there's always some people, right, who backed away, who called in sick, who were just doing there to advance their own career. Absolutely, there were uh, instances like that, just like here in the U.S. But I think when we when those medical workers were put to the test, they really did show the selflessness and the willingness to help those patients who were just so alone and scared by themselves hook out to the tubes in, in, in the ICUs. So, yeah, I, I feel like... I feel like hopefully my film is doing justice to all the great stories of all the healthcare workers in the world. KPCC's John Horn talking with Hao Wu, one of the directors of the documentary 76 Days, taking us to Wuhan, China in the early days of the pandemic. It's available to be seen on Lemley's virtual cinema. For our Film Week critics, I'm Larry Mantle. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a great weekend.